Now, as you sit, you might like to find uh, a Bible again, and we're going to turn back to um, Mark chapter 12, the second of the uh, uh, two readings that we had earlier in our service. It's page 1018, 1018. I think you'll find it helpful uh, so that you can see uh, where we're going uh, in the next uh, few moments. You might also, if you like this sort of thing, uh, grab hold of uh, one of the other things that have been put in your little bundle on the way in, and that is uh, this um, uh, sermon outline. Uh, so that you'll see uh, what I'm saying and uh, hopefully why I'm saying it as well in the next moments. Well, what we do now, um, for those who who are not normally here, is that we look at the Bible and try to see uh, what it is saying to us, and we need God's help to do that. So I'm going to pray before I start. Let's pray together. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at these words, that you'd help us to understand, uh, understand them and understand how we should respond. And we pray that as we respond aright, it would bring glory to your name and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, had a trip down memory lane on Friday night as I met up with some friends, one of whom I'd not seen for 30 years Uh, We had a great time uh, remembering old times together, catching up on the intervening years and um, even commenting on our physical appearance and how it's changed. One of my friends asked me, so when did you go grey? And I couldn't quite remember whether it was after the children arrived or after I started this job. Uh, I just couldn't remember, uh, which opened up to me even more ribbing. Um, The combination of the grey hair and my memory loss really did highlight that we were well and truly embedded in midlife. Uh, midlife, you know, that time of life when you bend down to tie your, up your shoelaces and you ask yourself, what else can I do while I'm down here? Uh, of course, uh, midlife is the time when we're supposed to have a crisis. I don't think I've quite yet had that. Uh, but I reckon the reason people do have a crisis is because midlife is the point when, the point in life when you've either reached a level in your career that you always aimed for, or you begin to realise that many of your dreams will never be realised. If you've achieved what you've always been aiming for, you begin to get that kind of empty so what feeling. I've got there and, and so what? And if you haven't achieved what you set out to achieve and what you think is what life is all about, you begin to fear that that elusive thing is now out of reach, that you're never going to reach it. And so you begin to feel the frustration of it all. You've worked your socks off and still there's that nagging feeling that you haven't yet got that thing that's missing and that is such a lonely place to be and that's why I think people have a midlife crisis it's such a hard thing to admit to as well because all of your life everyone around you has been telling you that this is what life is all about this pursuit of stuff of getting stuff of achieving stuff and it's in those moments those rare times when we stop and think And when we're honest with ourselves, we begin to realise that there is a longing deep down in all of us. A longing for something that is not of this world. A longing that is so strong that we're always looking to satisfy it. But because this world is all that we know, all the time we're looking to satisfy that longing in the things of this world. In love, in in travel, in things, in in attaining success, in our career, popularity among our friends, or or in experiences that we've not yet had. If I can just go on that holiday, maybe that's where I'll find it. And there are times when that, that longing appears to be satisfied. 
when we first fall in love, when we get the new job, when we buy our new home. And we think to ourselves, this is going to fulfill my dreams, but it just doesn't live up to it. Uh, The author C.S. Lewis, you know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he puts it like this in a book called Mere Christianity. He says, most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that promise to give you that elusive thing, but they they never quite keep their promise, do they? Well, our Bible passage today is all about finding that, that thing that we want deep down, whether we know it or not. The Bible calls it a number of things, and it's here in our passage. Indeed, it's there in verse 34. Right at the end of our passage, Jesus saw that this man, this teacher of the Lord, answered wisely, and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. What a great surprise that verse is, and that brings us to our first point on the handout, if you want to take notes or follow along. A great surprise. Jesus told the teacher of the law, you're not far from the kingdom of God. God, That is the surprise, the kingdom of God. That, says the Bible, is where we'll find the thing that we all want. And here is Jesus saying to this man, you're not far from it. Which clearly surprised everyone who heard this discussion. Because if you'll see at the end of verse 34, from then on no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. See, up to this point in Mark's gospel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, all these different religious groupings of the day had fired questions at Jesus, most of them trying to catch him out. Not that any of them actually managed it. Quite the opposite. All of them had been bamboozled by by Jesus' brilliant responses. And this was the the icing on the cake. When they heard how this exchange ended, they didn't dare ask Jesus any more questions. For Jesus here had outwitted a professor of the law in his own area of expertise. And then he went on to declare, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's a remarkable statement at a number of levels. First, because Jesus believes he has the authority to declare whether someone is in or not the kingdom of God. When you read that, you have to ask yourself, who does he think he is? And it's a remarkable statement because Jesus said this to a teacher of the law. We see that back in verse 28. We'll see it a bit more in a moment. But you see, the point is this. This man was an expert in God's law, a professor in the Jerusalem University Religious Studies Department, if you like. This man would have been highly respected in Israel. To be a teacher of the law would not only have been an expert in the law, but he'd also been the sort of person who practiced what he preached. Yet Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Encouragingly not far, but devastatingly not in either. And that is huge. There is no greater issue for any of us. If we are not part of the kingdom of God, then we will not spend eternity with Jesus beyond the grave. There is no more important issue in life. And we were thinking about this last week, for those of you who were here, and then just the events of of the news of this week have highlighted it. The tragic death of four miners in the Swansea Valley. Went to work in the morning, never came home. The sudden deaths of nine people at an air show in Nevada. Went for an afternoon of entertainment, never came home. The 
terrible events of the news show us how fragile life is and how we need to be ready to face our God. There is no more important question in life. What happens when I die is the most important question we can ever ask because it matters for eternity. Well, verse 34 raises the question, how do we get into God's kingdom? And it raises the question, because you see, if this man, the professor, this learned, respected, religious man, if he's not part of God's kingdom, how do we get in? Well, let's go back to the beginning of this little incident. The exchange all began back in verse 28, uh, following our second point uh, here, a huge debate. Look at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Uh, the debate that this teacher of the law overheard was a debate between Jesus and another religious group in Israel called the Sadducees. Now, if you just flip back in your Bible to verse 18 of chapter 12, you'll see the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe that when you die, you die. That's it. No life beyond the grave. I heard an interview um, on the radio on Wednesday this week with Mitch Winehouse, you know, Amy Winehouse's father. He was uh, promoting the launch of the Amy Winehouse Foundation, a, a charity that they've set up to help people overcome substance abuse. And uh, most of the interview was about this, um, uh, this new foundation. But right towards the end, the interviewer quite... Uh, quite uh, sensitively asked Mitch how he was coping following Amy's tragic death a couple of months ago. And he replied something like this. He said, well, we, our family, believe in life after death, and that is really helping us. Now, uh, that was Wednesday morning as I was having my shower, and uh, a few uh, moments later after I'd uh, had breakfast, I opened up uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, to prepare for this. And I suddenly thought, yeah, you know, Mitch Winehouse and others like him wouldn't get any help from the Sadducees. For they argued strongly that there is no resurrection, no life beyond the grave. And that was the issue they took to Jesus. And so in verses 18 to 27 of chapter 12, we can read how that debate between Jesus and the Sadducees panned out. But for us this morning, all we need to do is look at how it ended. In Mark chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. He said to these Sadducees, another religious group who thought they knew the Bible well, he said, you've, you've missed the point. You don't understand the scriptures. Effectively, Jesus said to them, you've got it all wrong when it comes to life after death. There is life after death, he says. And as Jesus said that, the teacher of the law, our professor of biblical studies, was thrilled because he was listening in and he did believe in life beyond the grave. And so halfway through verse 28, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? You see, the, pref the professor had just heard Jesus on the resurrection. Now he wanted to hear Jesus on a completely different issue. No doubt hoping that Jesus would agree with him on that new issue too. For this was his hobby horse. In verse 28, the professor brought to the table his favourite subject, the subject that occupied his mind all the time, and the subject that all his biblical studies colleagues throughout, uh, uh, through, through, throughout their whole lives thought about all the time. It's the issue of the law, of God's law. And very specifically, what is the most important commandment in the whole of God's law? 
These professors of the law gave their lives to studying and classifying and categorizing God's law. I'm told that some have discerned as many as 613 rules in the Old Testament law. I was was in a meeting last weekend where an important issue was being debated. And, and, um, well, we thought it was important. Whether others did or not, I don't know. But we thought it was an important issue that was being debated. And, And we came to a point in the meeting where a vote needed to be taken. And the chairman told us how we were to proceed. And a delightful woman stood up and said, Mr. Chairman, a matter of procedure, if I may. And she went on to explain how and why we needed to do things just in a slightly different way to the way the chairman had suggested. Uh, She was wonderfully humble and diffident about it. And, And I tell you the story because as she sat down, she said... With a smile on her face, she said, it's a technicality, I know, but, but I'm an anorak when it comes to synodical government in the Church of England. Well, she may have been an anorak, but the whole meeting was delighted she was an anorak because she dug us out of a potentially embarrassing hole. We could have kind of done it all wrong and the whole debate would have come to nothing. Now, in the same way, these professors were anoraks when it came to the matters of the law. And while all the details of all their endless de- debating may seem to us somewhat incidental. To them, it was much more than an issue of procedure. They would argue that this was a matter of life and death. See, if God has spoken in the Bible, we need to hear what he said. And if God has told us his law, we need to know if we're lawbreakers or not. So to become, so to be an anorak when it comes to God's law was potentially life-saving, eternal life-saving. This was an issue about entering God's kingdom. So here is Jesus, questioned by a teacher of the law, asking a question about the law, a question that this professor and all his colleagues debated endlessly. And the question is there at the end of verse 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus replied thirdly with a loving command. Verse 29, Jesus said, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. In those verses, verses 29 to 31, Jesus quoted two verses from the Old Testament law. One of them we had read earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We had it also uh, during the uh, the little uh, service earlier as well. And then the other one comes in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, if you want to take notes. These two laws, said Jesus, sum up the whole law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love God and love your neighbour. So here, in in just three verses, Jesus boils all the law of God into one principle, love directed to God and to others. You see, Jesus said love is at the heart of God's law. And love is at the heart of the law because God is a God of love. And his law reflects his character, what he's like. That's a huge surprise for many people. Look, I'm very excited about this One Big Question initiative this term. And uh, I'm looking forward to asking people uh, what their one big question would be for God. I'm expecting some questions that I've never heard before. It's going to be great fun hearing what people think. But equally, I wouldn't be surprised if one question we hear is about why God wants to take all the fun out of life. You see, when I've spoken to people about Jesus uh, down through the years, they've expressed a view that they think that God is out to ruin life. Do you know people think that? that he's the great party pooper in the sky, 
that his law is all about rules and regulations that, that cramp my style by telling me that I can't do this, that, and the other. Thou shalt not. But according to Jesus here, that, that's not it at all. See, verse 29 and 30, the most important commandment is to love God. And verse 31, the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is at the heart of God's law. You see, when I think about it, when I love, it doesn't ruin life, it makes life better. Who doesn't want people around them who, who love them, encouraging them, embracing them, supporting them? Who wouldn't want to live in a community where we put others first? A society where we show compassion and kindness to each other, where we are humble and gentle and patient, where we bear with each other's mistakes and forgive people when they get it wrong because we know that we get it wrong as well. Love would change everything in our society, from litter being thrown into bins to antisocial behaviour, from helping little old ladies across the road to never having a repeat of the riots we experienced six weeks ago. And love could change whole nations. It would change everything from the civil wars we hear about every time we turn on the television news to the problem of famine. God isn't a big spoil sport in the sky. He wants to make life better. He's not out to ruin life. He's for us. He, he wants the best for us. He's a God of love, and at the heart of his law is love. Love for himself and love for our neighbour. Yeah, it's hit me this week. Because there's been an incident where I haven't lived this. And I've ruined it for people, and for me, frankly. God isn't out to ruin life. If I live this and I love people, it makes life better. And as I read this, it strikes me that if people heard that love was the focus of the Christian gospel, that might change the way they viewed being involved with Christian things. And if people experience love from us and perceive love as the defining force among us, I'm convinced that many more people would want to be involved with Christian things. So Jesus says here, love is right at the heart of God's law. Indeed, it is the fulfilling of the law. If you ever read God's law in a way that does not result in you loving God and loving people, you haven't read it properly. But having said all that, when it comes to the really big thing that Jesus says here, we need to be even more precise than that. For Jesus doesn't just say, go away and be a loving person. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. No, look at verse 30. The most important commandment is not just to love, but to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See, the God who is love, the God who loves, has written in his law that we should love him unreservedly with our soul, our life, our all. See, verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We talk about putting heart and soul into something. You know what that means. It means we're going to give everything to it. Ah, love me with everything. Heart and soul and verse 30, mind. You're thinking about God, learning about him, studying the Bible where God has revealed himself. Put everything into that heart, soul, mind. And verse 30, all your strength. Put every effort into loving him with every fiber of our being. See, it's not just love, it's love for God that is at the heart of God's law. For God's law points to God himself. But hang on a moment. At a glance, it sounds as if the one true God is a self-centered egomaniac who seems to be anything but love. This would be a great question for the question box, wouldn't it? 
The greatest commandment is to, God says, is to love me with everything you have. That doesn't sound loving. That sounds thoroughly selfish. Well, look again at verse 29, uh, where it tells us the Lord is one. He is the only God. There is no other. And if I can put it this way, that puts him in a class of his own. See, as John Piper, the, the Christian preacher and writer, puts it, everything else belongs to a class. We are human. Rover is a dog. The oak is a tree, earth is a planet, the Milky Way is one of a billion galaxies, Gabriel is an angel, Satan is a demon, but only God is God. And therefore, he is holy, utterly different, distinct, unique. He goes on. And therefore, the holiness of God is synonymous with his infinite value. Diamonds are valuable because they are rare and hard to make. God is infinitely valuable because... He is the rarest of all beings and cannot be made at all, nor was he ever made. Piper goes on and he says this, If I were a collector of rare treasures and could somehow have God, the Holy One, in my treasury, I would be wealthier than all the collectors of all the rarest treasures that exist outside of God. I think his point is is brilliant. There's nothing or rather no one more valuable than the one true God. So to have God, or better, to know God, is to know the most valuable and the most precious thing in the universe. And whether we realise it or not, he is what we're longing for. We're all the time, where am I going to find this thing that makes sense of life? It's him. And for that reason... When he tells us to love him with everything that we have, it's not a selfish, egocentric thing. It is actually a loving thing. Out of his love for us, he commands us to love him, for in loving him, we discover what life is all about. How kind of him. It turns out to be the most loving thing that God can do to tell us to love him. For as we do that, we suddenly find the very thing that we've all craved for, for all our lives, the meaning of life itself, uh, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer with the band Queen, uh, he died in 1991. I can't believe it's 20 years ago. He said this, you can have everything in the world and still be the loneliest man, and that is the most bitter type of loneliness. Success has brought me world idolization and millions of pounds, but it's prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. The one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. Freddie Mercury was right. We all, well, he was almost right. Because it's not just any loving, ongoing relationship that we all need. It's, it's a loving, ongoing relationship with the one true God that we need. That's what we were made for. And so what could be more loving than for God to tell us to love him? What could be more loving than for God to lead us to him? So uh, John Piper uh, writes this. God is the one being in all the world for whom the most loving act is self-exaltation. For it is he and he alone who will satisfy our hearts. And so God commands us to love him. Not because he's a self-centered egomaniac, but because he loves us. Uh, And so Jesus' words here in verse 30 tell us that God's Law doesn't simply ask us to love, but the law takes us to God himself. 
a loving command then that uh, fourthly led to a wise answer uh, in, in verse 32. In verse 32, the professor replied, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love our na- your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And look how Jesus responds in verse 34. And Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely. This was a wise answer from the professor. What was so wise about the professor's answer? Well, firstly, he agreed with Jesus. That's always wise. But notice what else he said at the end of verse 33. He, he said, uh, to love God and to love your neighbor is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He is saying loving God is more important than religion or religious observance. Religion's a terrible thing. Now, now there's a thing to hear in church and from the vicar. I reckon most of you didn't think the vicar was going to say that today. Religion is a terrible thing. As I use the term religion, I'm referring to any attempt to make myself right with God through my own achievement. You know, if I work hard enough, God's going to accept me. That's what religion is, and it's very different from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is all about, well, here's the phrase, salvation by grace. It's about God making me right with him through not my work but through what he has done on the cross see religion me trying to get myself right with god is a terrible thing because religion then kind of pushes god to one side and it makes me horribly arrogant those of us who are here and would call ourselves committed christians are in real danger of religion Uh, Tim Keller writes uh, very well on this uh, in this book that I waved around last week, uh, Counterfeit Gods. He explains how religious actions can be elevated above God himself. And one of those religious actions that we can put in the place of God is doctrinal truth, is knowing stuff about the Bible, which, of course, the um, teacher of the law was into. Keller says this, when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself... They've started towards idolatry. Huge danger for the professor and all his colleagues. Huge huge danger for us. You see, they had such a high opinion of themselves because they knew so much about the scriptures. And anybody who didn't know as much as them, the 613 laws or whatever it was, they would look down on them. Jesus says as much in verse 38, just beyond our passage. Look what he writes, uh, he says in verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour in banquets. They knew so much about the Old Testament scriptures, but for them, their knowledge of the scriptures was where they found their worth. They trusted in their knowledge of the Bible, not in the God of the Bible. That's a danger for us here. For when that happens, you begin to look down on others who don't know their Bible as well as you. And then you treat them with contempt. You treat with contempt anyone who opposes your views. You see, the rightness of your view makes you feel kind of superior. You feel so proud of yourself because of your knowledge. And as soon as that happens, you will stop loving your neighbour. And actually, you no longer love God either. But that's the very purpose of the law. So here you are, taking the law, getting all proud about what you know about the law, and not loving people. You've missed the point. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, Paul writes, if I have knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. And he writes, knowledge puffs up, 
But love builds up, encourages others. Before we move on from this point, another way that religion is harmful is to do with moral living. Uh, so uh, uh, Keller, again, talking about the danger of morality or you know, trying to be good. He says, because we've lived virtuous lives, we feel that God and the people we meet owe us respect and support. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and our inspiration, we're still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. I see it in my own life. I'm sure you do, if you're honest. When I attain a moral standard, I look down my nose at others who haven't lived up to the same standard as me. So I don't love them, as God's law tells me to. I love myself and have contempt for them. I could do it, why can't they? Religion is a terrible thing. If religion is just about me, you know, trying to be a certain standard of goodness... And rather than lead us to love God and others, it results in us being condescending towards others and turns us away from God. Well, the brilliant thing here is that the professor understood that. See, verse 33 says, To love God and neighbour is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So much more important than all religious observance. And so Jesus says to him, you've answered wisely and said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And we're right back to our great surprise of our passage. The professor was not far from the kingdom of God, near but not in. Which means he doesn't yet have eternal life. Which means he doesn't yet have the thing we all long for and need. But if he had everything so right, why was he not in God's kingdom? And our fifth point, very briefly. Uh, The missing link. What would he have to do to be in God's kingdom? What do you and I have to do to be in God's kingdom? Well, we can see his problem, the professor's problem, in one word in verse 32. I wonder if you noticed it. He called Jesus teacher. He had so much right, but on the fundamental issue, he was hopelessly wrong. I heard of a man who failed his driving test again and again and again, and over and over, I can't remember how many times it was. It was an embarrassing amount of times he failed his driving test. He knew the highway code inside out and back to front. He never failed the written test. In fact, he always got really high marks, if not all the questions right. He knew it so well. He knew so much, but on the fundamental issue, he was hopeless. He couldn't drive. Now, in the same way, you see, this professor was brilliant. He understood the law. He understood what, you know, it was about loving God and loving your neighbor. He could pass the written test. He was wise to understand that love was at the heart of God's law and not religion. He didn't know the fundamental issue. On this, he was rubbish. He couldn't drive. He didn't understand who Jesus is. That's why the very next thing that Mark records for us here in verses 35 to 37 is Jesus explaining who he was. It's a technical argument, but just stay with me for a moment. It's not long. It's just that what he says here is that um, the Christ is David's son. King David is a descendant of the great King David. In other words, the Christ is going to be a human being, but David called him Lord, the Christ Lord. In other words, he is also God. King David's Lord, the Lord Almighty, the one true God, is going to be a descendant of David, a human being. God and man, that's the argument. 
Note most crucially that while Jesus was teaching this, he was questioning the understanding of the teachers of the law, the understanding of this professor. He says in verse 35, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? And in verse 38, as we've already seen, watch out for the teachers of the law. And the point is, he's saying, here's the missing link. Here is what the teachers of the law hadn't understood. They haven't understood, Jesus says, who I am. The professor just called Jesus, verse 32, teacher. But if Jesus was no more than a teacher, no greater than the professor, a teacher of the law, then the professor would never turn to Jesus and follow him. See, Jesus is the missing link. How do those who are near to the kingdom of God get into the kingdom of God? How do those who understand that God's law is about love and most of all about loving God and loving others, how do they get into God's kingdom? How do people who understand that God doesn't want religion get into God's kingdom? Very simply by turning to Jesus and following him. So Mark's gospel began in chapter 1 verse 15. The kingdom of God is near. Exactly what he's saying here. You're not far. The kingdom of God is near Repent and believe the good news. Turn away from your own ways. Turn away from trying to get right with God through religion. Turn away from trying to get right with God through morality. Turn away from all of that. Repent and believe the good news about Jesus Christ who died on the cross to give you forgiveness, who rose from the grave to bring life everlasting to you and me. Repent and believe. That's what we've been seeing over these last weeks. We've been looking at these uh, amazing passages in Mark's Gospel. Jesus says, come follow me. And that is the really big surprise of this passage, isn't it? God's law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. Love God with every fibre of your being. And then we discover that that means loving Jesus. For he is none other than the Lord, the one true God. That's why he could make this amazing judgment in verse 34. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's none other than the God of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is the one who judges who's in and who's out. And Jesus is the one who gets me into the kingdom of God. For through his death on the cross, Jesus is the one who can bring me forgiveness for not loving God with all my soul, my life, my all. And he's the one who gives me forgiveness for not loving my neighbour as myself. God's law takes me to Jesus. And until I turn to him, I may be near the kingdom, but I'm not in. And that may sound encouraging, but in this one, a miss is as good as a mile. And it means, actually, if I carry on in that way, I'm I'm heading for a midlife crisis because I'm never going to find the thing that can only be found in God's kingdom. But actually, much worse than a midlife crisis, it means I'm, I'm going to miss out on life beyond the grave with Jesus, the one I was made for, the one where I will find that missing thing. And if I turn to him, have it for eternity. Well, let's pray together. And Lord and God, we thank you very much that your word, the Bible, addresses us at the very deepest level. Uh, we, although we've done this already, we want to confess to you that we haven't loved you with every part of our lives. 
and we haven't loved others as we should. We ask for forgiveness, and we thank you that through the death of Jesus, we can have that forgiveness. And we pray, please, that you'd help us to realize that that you are what life is all about. And so to love you is a good thing, not just because it makes life better, but because it gives us what we're looking for. Give us courage to turn to you, to give you our all, and as we do, to discover the very meaning of life. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.